Uh, Father, we thank you, Lord, for gathering us here. We thank you, Father, as we've been focusing our hearts and our minds the past few months on the gospel and uh, we thank you, Lord, that that is what our pursuit is as a group. That is what our pursuit is as a church. And, and that is what you're calling us, Lord, to center our lives on as individuals. Uh, we thank you, Father, that we could wrap up the series today. And we also thank you for the many ways in which this pursuit doesn't end. And so we just want to pray, Father, that you open up our hearts and our minds today as we seek you in your word. Help us, Father, to find our identity and our worth squarely in your intent for us when you made us in your image. And help us, Father, to find delight and joy in how we can live for you according to your design so that we may live out our fullness and we may live out our joy in Christ. We also pray, Lord, for this time that we're together. We thank you, Father, that as a whole, as an entire group, Father, that we are putting away something that maybe normally would occupy our attention. So we thank you, Father, that this is a we thing. Uh, this isn't just a few of us that are doing this. And we just want to praise you, Father, just for uh, this time that we have together, just to be in your word with each other. We want to pray, Lord, for those that couldn't make it today. We want to pray for the health, God, of counselors and students uh, that are struggling and are recovering. We pray, Lord, for those that are traveling, that you'd be with them. And we just want to thank you for this time. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so like I was saying in the beginning, we are beginning new things and we are also ending something. So this is the very first sermon of 2018. So yay, praise God for that. Uh, we, are coming, we are coming to the end of this series that we started since last October while Pastor Eugene was still here called The Gospel And. Now, how many of you guys remember some of the topics that we connected with the gospel? Raise your hand or call it out if you remember. The Gospel And. Something. And something. Thank you. You know that Aaron is recording this, right? This is this is fantastic. The gospel and... Okay, the gospel and being cool. Do you guys remember that one? Uh, you know, you guys are very, you guys are very cool. You, know, you didn't need that one, apparently. The gospel and, like, college and work. Do you remember that one? Okay. The gospel and lukewarm Christianity and how that contrasts. Do you remember that one? The gospel and... Your identity in Christ as sojourners and exiles. Do you remember that one? Yeah. Okay, so we're trying to tie some of those things together. And as we go, it's going to reconnect in some ways to some of those ideas. But it's going to come back to the gospel. And the gospel began with the Creator. And so with that, I want to take us to Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 through 28. Because when we go there, we're going to see the Creator in action then causing the beginnings of where the gospel has its place. The gospel is good news because it brings about restoration and reconciliation to God's original design. And so we want to look at the beginning and see the original design. So as the passage is up there, let's read this together. This is a wonderful opportunity for us to engage in God's word together. So let's go ahead and read this. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Blessed be the reading of God's word. So we're going to look at different aspects of this passage, one verse at a time, seeing how the way in which God designed you and me, men and women, is in a way that reflects who he is and points to a greater design and purpose for our lives. So the very first thing is that men and women are made in God's image. And with there, what was said points us to a few applications, a few understandings about ourselves that we really need to harbor. Because if we don't hold on to God's original intent and why he made us and what in his image looks like, we kind of get lost in this confusing world. We kind of get lost into ways in which people want us to find value, ways in which people want to think of us, ways in which people want to put us in boxes and say, you are worthy or you are not. You are good or you are inferior. If we don't go back to what it means to be made in God's image and that he did this on purpose, 
then it's very hard for us to, to truly find joy and worth in who we are. Because we know that we're not perfect. We know that we have flaws. And even what little bit of what people see, we know ourselves in our hearts that we are definitely much more broken and not put together than what people think we are. And so the very first part about being made in God's image is that God made you intentionally. So you're not an accident as much as maybe certain aspects of our society or certain sciences or practices try to drill into us that we are all just a, a giant happenstance of some cosmic random accidents that took place in the past. If Genesis 1 is true, you are not an accident. You're not even an afterthought. You were intended to have been made by creator God. Now in Psalm 139 verses 13 and 14, the psalmist cries out with this truth. For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. Right there in Psalm 139, there's an aspect of what it means to be intentionally made that I really want you guys to have drilled into your minds and hearts. So being intentionally made means that God intended to know you and for you to be known. So God didn't make you to be a machine. God didn't make you to be a, a, a useless, faceless part of something. God made you to know you and to make you known. Okay, that's what it means to be made intentionally. That's what it reflects in Psalm 139 when he's able to say, from the womb, God knew who I was. And in the same way, even before you were born, God knew who you were. Now, this morning, there was actually, uh, in Washington, D.C., there was an annual March for Life. And that is rooted in this idea that it's not about so much, you know, you're talking about, you know, semantics or preferences or anything like that. But at the end of the day, if God knows a child, even before he or she comes into the world, then there's intrinsic dignity and worth in that child, even in the womb. And so those of us then that actually, you know, believe in what the Bible says, we value that. And we think, okay, well, what can we do to, to, to make that something that reflects itself in our society and begins with our own families and our own decisions, right? That if it is a child in the womb, outside of the womb, that he or she is worthy to be loved because God intentionally made that person to be known and to know. Now, that being said, we are more than just one part of a person's life in terms of what we advocate for. This is also why adoption is a very meaningful thing for Christians. This is also why caring for orphans is a meaningful thing. This is also why when people get old, that there's still a means in which we as Christians should be caring for them and concerned about them and watching over their welfare. It's because there's intrinsic worth in people because God made them intentionally. Secondly, God made you in his likeness. And you're looking around going, you know, and there's not even two people here that, that look alike. You know, uh, you know, good thing Michael and Daniel aren't here anymore. I'm just kidding. There's not even two people here that look alike. But God made you in his likeness, not so much that we necessarily look like each other. That's a very important point to hold on to because a lot of times we find our deepest and easiest affinities with people that look like us or that dress like us or that have the same things that we do. But at the end of the day, those things are kind of shallow if we're not remembering that each of us have a likeness to God, the one that made us. Who remembers where this is from? And many of you might actually be able to quote this. Actually, I think Vincent can quote this if I remember last year. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. See, I, I remember stuff. So uh, that, that was a really good speech you made last year as part of speakers. Um, so because we are made in God's image, there's something precious and valuable about who we are as people, where you're not just able to, to take away certain rights from others, or you're, you shouldn't just be able to oppress and alienate people because they are worth something. 
Now, if God made you in His likeness, it's very important that we reflect His character. And the, in the Old Testament as well as the New Testament speaks of this very clearly. There's one simple truth for God's people. And I'll, I'll quote you the verse from Leviticus 20, 26. But this is found in all different places in the Old Testament. You shall be holy to me. This is God speaking. For I, the Lord, am holy and have separated you from the peoples that you should be mine. So because we are made in God's image, God's intent for us then is to be a group of people that in our personal lives and in community that we reflect God's holiness, God's love, God's purity, God's righteousness, God's goodness and kindness, God's patience. Everything about God that makes him worthy of worship, that makes him lovable, that makes him the greatest. We should, as a people, reflect that. You know, this week we also celebrated Martin Luther King. And, and as he's speaking on looking people, looking at people and judging them from their character and their works and not from what is on the color of their skin, we're reminded that, you know what, this is really just an extension and application of what the Bible has already called us to do. There's a reason why that even Martin Luther King, in his flaws and weaknesses, he was speaking and pointing to the truth of God having designed people in his image first so that the walls that we put up between one another, whether it's racist, whether it's classes, whether it's status, that has no room to stand because we're primarily rooted in our likeness to God and that there's something inside each of us that is valuable and meaningful, that can't be taken away by other people and that shouldn't be oppressed by others. So God looks at the heart because he made you in your heart to reflect his character and who he is. So that's the second thing, to be made in God's image. The third thing is God made you to be in relationship. God didn't even make Adam and Eve originally to be alone. He knew that they were meant to be in relationship, but that was his plan. But this is a much bigger and important and central truth because right in the beginning of Genesis 1, how does God open up his declaration of his desire and intent to create? He says, let us make man in our image. See, we find the support for a Trinitarian God of three persons, equal in value, equal in substance, but in eternal community and perfect love with one another in the Godhead. That's been there since the very beginning. That God himself is a community of three persons that loves each other perfectly and that dwells and that communes in perfect relationship. We saw this just even this past week in youth service and in English service as well. In Mark chapter 1, 11, what happened when Jesus was officially in a public way affirmed to begin his ministry? His heavenly father in a, a loud voice spoke from heaven and said, you are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. So even Jesus, who is the perfect son of God, sinless, fulfilling all Old Testament prophecies, coming as the anointed one, there was a declaration of affirmation and relationship for him. And so if you were made in God's image, you were made to be in relationship now, I want to pause a moment to consider that. So if you're made in God's image intentionally, if you were made in God's image with something valuable inside, and you were made in God's image for a relationship, then why is it that so many of you, and, and certainly at times for many of us as counselors and pastors, why do we feel lonely? Why is it that we're surrounded and connected in all varieties of ways? As technology advances, that seems to be where it keeps pushing. How do you connect with people? How do you interact with people? How do you find people? Why do we feel so alone that we could be connected to hundreds, but yet in a room by yourself, you feel like there is no one that cares about you. There's no one that understands you. There's no one that appreciates you. There's no one that is willing to commit to you the way that you're willing to commit to them. You know, even in... A church family, that can happen. And even in the most committed of relationships, you can have those moments in which you feel alone. That's a real difficulty for us. And more and more, as you read 
what people write and what studies show, it is your generation that feels more and more lonely. Which is, again, so ironic because you are the most connected generation in the history of this planet. You guys feel very lonely. You know, we were made to have this need to belong because it reflects God's image in us. And so this need to belong then, if we don't center it to, to, to the source and to the creator who gave us the yearning, then it's like anything goes. You know, logic goes out the window, rationale goes out the window, what we believe goes out the window. And in pursuit of this desire not to be alone, we will do almost anything. We will circumvent any rule. We will break any conviction if we don't surrender our hearts and our lives to God. You know, when you look at social media and you're going to hear lots of mention of social media as we go, just because it's just, it's like life now. It's not like it's not, it's not like it's not abnormal or extraordinary. This is just like the water that you swim in, you know, if you're fish, right? So if, if you're looking at social media, you kind of get this, uh, Portrayal of what is normal, according to our culture. Have you noticed what is normal? What is normal is always so beautiful. What is normal is always so happy. What is normal is always like so colorful and fancy. What is normal is always so cool and different. What is normal is even if heartbreak happens, something greater follows. What is normal is being able to experience all these new things in life and never having to feel like you're tied down. I mean, how many of you guys get that message from social media, if that's normal, in terms of what you understand? <laughs> Just me and Aaron, okay. But I mean, for what it's worth, I, I, I think, you know, if you look at what is liked the most, if you look at what is echoed the most, commented on the most, it reflects that understanding of normalcy. That normalcy equals perfection. That normalcy equals everything being put together. That even when something is broken, that there's some kind of a happy thought or there's, you know, no looking back, you know, it's going to be a better 2018. That's normal. Do you realize that even though we're made in God's image, that because of the fall, that we're supposed to struggle? That what is normal for us is actually brokenness? That, that what should be expected are ways in which we hurt each other and ways we fall short, in which we might try to put out a, 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 a facade of something that is beautiful and colorful and fancy, but at the end of the day, that can't fill us and that can't meet our deepest needs. But we don't stop trying and culture doesn't stop pushing to say, find yourself in this, find your value in that. If you run with these people, then you are in the right places. You know, the same studies that evaluate your loneliness as a generation are the same studies that also point out that as a result of finding yourself, a normal person who is flawed in a culture that pushes perfectionism, that there's greater instances of anxiety, just feeling like you don't have it all together. There's greater instances of depression where you just go through these seasons where you just have a giant cloud over your head and there's nothing you can do. There's nothing you can eat, nowhere you can go, no people you can hang with, no change you can make. You just feel like you have this cloud and it won't go away. There's higher incidences of that now. And for some, even thoughts of suicide, if not attempts of suicide. And I know as I'm speaking of this, I'm not speaking to people for which this is just shattering your worldview. I think this is just how you know life to be. So at the end of the day, if we are made in God's image, I think what really matters is that you start to find your worth and your value in God and not in a secondary inferior image that the world wants you to conform to. And notice how I'm not pointing at any particular group in the world, which sometimes might be easy to do. But just in general, if you depart from God's validation and intent of you as someone made in his image, anything else falls short, whether it's a hobby, whether it's a status, whether it's a nationality, whether it's a sport, whether it's a, an interest, it falls short. 
because you were not made just to be someone that gets plugged into a hobby or an interest or something simple like that. So where do you find your validation? If God made you and you're made in his image, you can either seek validation externally, what people see about you, or you can find validation internally, and that begins with you seeking and desiring God. What does God think of me? How can I please God? How can I live my life so that one that made me and knows me the most, that made me to be known, would be glorified? This is actually why our next series is going to be focused on relationships and sex, because those are very human ways of finding affirmation. And those things are not wrong because God made them, but he intended those things to be lived out and enjoyed in a way that reflects that we are made in his image, not that we use his gifts to create our own image and validation. So that's why the next two months, when we enter to take a turn into that, this is a direct connection. This is not just, okay, what's the next series? If we hold on to the gospel defines me, then the gospel defines me in my relationships. So what is that going to look like? So we're going to explore that the next two months and really looking forward to it. It's going to be a pretty cool group of speakers that's going to share a mix of counselors and, and pastors, older people, younger people, people that you know, people you don't know as well but I'm excited. So I hope you're excited too. And, and I'll communicate with your parents because I, I need them to, uh, you know, to give you permission to be a part of it. I mean, we're going to try to go deep. And so you'll, you'll hear, you'll hear, but hopefully you're excited because in learning about what the Bible teaches and being able to engage with each other, it fills out our understanding of what it means to be made in God's image intentionally to be made in God's image to reflect his likeness and to be made in God's image to know people and to love people because he made us to know and to love us. Now, secondly, we see in chapter one, verse 27, uh, this very specific detail, which doesn't necessarily have to be so detailed and, and, and just, you know, kind of laying out the precise description here. So this is, you know, something that, that is said that is a reflection of, of, of a popular uh, or just a familiar um, memory, or not memory, but a familiar retelling of when God made people. And it says in verse 27, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. If God made you intentionally, if God made you for a relationship, then the identity that you have as a man or a woman, as a guy or as a girl, that was intended by God as well. So, so where we need to kind of, kind of like work our way through the muddiness of today, but, but with a very sympathetic heart and with a very humble understanding of why people struggle is that First things first, we don't define our gender identity. God did and God does. So who defines our gender identity? You or God? God does. Now with that then, something that we have to recognize is that some of us, if not all of us in some way, shape or form are going to struggle with our gender identity. Let me get to what I mean with that. It's not that... Everyone here is wondering, oh man, am I really a guy? Am I really a girl? But see, there's, there's more than just your biology that defines you as well. So, so we're talking about your gender identity and also what God had intended men to be or biblical manhood and what God had intended women to be or biblical womanhood. And for that, we're all going to struggle because none of us live out to the fullest if you are guys, what God made you to be as a servant leader, as a man of honor, as somebody that's willing to sacrifice someone that possesses and uses strength in a meaningful way, as someone that has courage and is willing to lay down his life. No guy does this completely, perfectly, consistently. So we're going to struggle. Even if we just know, hey, I'm a guy, I'm a guy, there's nothing to talk about here. I don't struggle with that external stuff. But you're going to struggle with how to live 
as a man in a way that's pleasing to God. For a biblical womanhood, it's the same thing. That, yes, God created you equal, and God created you with gifts, and God loves upon you in so many ways. And then through you, he expresses love to people and to family in ways that are so unique. But every girl, every woman is going to fall short of the nurturing, the, the, the serving, the, the, the honorable and the, the loving, humble partnership that God had created women to have and to be. Now, in this situation, in this broken life that we live in, no man does it perfectly. No woman does this perfectly. But even then, God calls a man and a woman together to be in covenant marriage for life. And when you recognize that, you see that, well, it's not because they're deserving or they got it all together, but it's because we're made in God's image and he wants to work on us and we complement each other. And together we represent a fuller image of God than if it was a world filled with guys or a world filled with girls. There's something about when a guy and a girl connects, commits, covenants with each other for life to honor Christ, that God is glorified in that. And his intent is revealed in greater and more clear ways, not only just to the couple, but to the world of what his love looks like. But we're all going to struggle. We're all going to, to wrestle. Every man and every woman, you guys are equal and, and you are made to be equally valuable and equally loved. But you just have to look at, look at each other and realize that, you know what? God made us different too. That's not a bad thing. That's a good thing. It's a good thing that men are called to be honorable and sacrificial, considering their lives less worthy than someone that they're supposed to sacrifice it for. That's a good thing. When that happens, you have soldiers that go to war to die for their country, to die for their families and to protect their wives and to protect their children. That's not a bad thing. In the same way, if you have women, those who are going to be in a covenantal marriage who then, in God's blessing, begins a family, there is no one that can replace mom in terms of her love and her commitment and her understanding, whether she works or not. That's not the point. It's not about taking away something from a woman, but that God designed her to, 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 to serve and to minister and to lead in very specific ways in the home that just are irreplaceable. And it reveals God's glory and his perfect design, which we kind of see in a shadow right now in this world. You know, even Christians don't get this right. I'm just referring, you know, in preparing for today's um, sermon, I just there's been a lot of headlines and other things that's come up. And so I'm, I'm going to point us to some of those things to try to connect biblical ideas to, to your headlines, to what you hear. But this week there was a, a major um, controversy that exploded over a pastor of a big church right now, a teaching pastor, which means he has spiritual authority to lay out God's word for people and to say, you know what, thus says the Lord, obey this and keep this that there was a cover-up that 20 years ago, you know, that he sexually assaulted a high schooler and he was a college student who was a pastor, a youth pastor. And so even Christians don't always get this right. And right now it's like when, when Christians don't get this right, you know, the world looks at this and looks for repentance. The world looks at this and sees, wait, is the gospel really true? Is this person responding in a way that shows that, you know, he is, you know, truly owning up to things. It's, it is, you know, this, this girl whose like life has been like forever shattered, you know, now finally speaking out. I mean, it's a tragic thing. And it tugs at our heartstrings and our understanding of what is right and wrong in our conscience. But I mean, that shows how serious biblical manhood and woman needs to be. And it begins in the church. See, a lot of times we want to make laws or tell other people what to do. And, and there's definitely the place for that. But you realize that the, the illustrations and the examples of the beauty of God's design actually begins within the household of God. That if you are saying that you are a follower of Jesus, this matters so much. First for you. And then we have the lens to look at the world outside of us.
if we don't even try to get it right, you know, we're just being legalistic and telling others to conform. So this is so important. This understanding and this embracing of this identity that God made you male. God made you female. He gave you a purpose to live out through this identity. And it's so important for us to, to value what God values here. Finally, in uh, chapter 1, verse 28, we were made for a purpose. You know, there's a, this is going to be, to some of you, a disappointment. Um, but God, in verse 28, said this, Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So your intrinsic worth makes you greater than animals, okay? So that was established in 26 as well, okay? Verse 26. But when God made Adam and Eve in their perfection, God gave them work. God gave them something to keep busy with and to use their gifts and talents. He gave them these animals to say, you know what, take care of them, you know, uh, make them grow. And then he gave them one another to, to start family. Right, so we were made to be useful. Okay? We were made to, to be productive and industrious. And that's why I was joking around that maybe some of you guys would read this and go, oh man, you know, I, I thought it was just about you know, chilling or, or hanging out or relaxing or something. Summer breaks you know, all year long, right? No, but God actually made us to be people that could find joy in, in being productive. Okay? So we were made for a purpose. But what is that purpose? Well, if you look at this, teaching here this commandment be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth if you are god's image bearer what god is wanting to see happen is that his image is spread out and covers the earth that those that reflect his heart and his holiness and his purity and his goodness would invade and infiltrate now a sin torn world and bring repentance and restoration in his name. That's what God wants all of us to do is to do everything that we do to bring glory to his name through how we live out our identity. Now, you know, we're in Olympic season, which is so weird because it's like, it just slapped you upside the head and it's the Olympics. I, I really didn't think about this until like last week with all the North Korea, South Korea news. And I'm like, oh wait, there's an Olympics in like three weeks? I didn't even know. It's happened so fast. But you guys know who that is, right? Michael Phelps, like the world's most decorated everything. Um, anyway. That's right, he's a swimmer. Um, but you know there's something that's really interesting about him? So he, he's, as, he's as much of a winner as it comes. Okay, you're not going to find a greater Olympic athlete than this guy who completely, utterly dominated the sport that dominated the world for several Olympics. We're not even talking about like a one-time wonder. This guy just, you know, ruled over everyone. Um, but here's something that he shared recently. He said, really, after every Olympics, I think I fell into a major state of depression. So people that interviewed him found that to be absolutely interesting. So like, you know what, can you, can you tell me more? Can you tell us like why this happened or, or when it happened? So he went on, he said, he noticed the pattern of emotions that just wasn't right at certain times during every year. And it would be around October and November. And then he added to say that 2004 was probably the first depression spell I went through. And so, so what is it about Michael Phelps that even though he's so well decorated, even though he achieved everything, that after he reaches the mountaintop, a few months after that, he's at the valley, he's in the dumps, he's lying down on the ground, somewhat helpless and hopeless. He goes on, the hardest fall was after the 2012 Olympics. He said this, I didn't want to be in the sport anymore. I didn't want to be alive anymore. And this is how he lived at his all time low. He sat alone for three to five days in his bedroom, not eating, barely sleeping. And according to him in quotes, just not wanting to be alive. So this was just a few years ago. It was at that point then he realized that he needed help. And so, you know, he did seek out help. He was able to, um, you know, connect with some, um, you know, professionals and so on and so forth um, that, that maybe in some ways um, support him, help him. I don't know the details of that through counseling or medication or other things. But, but here's something for us to consider. You, you realize that even with, let's say, you know, uh, drugs or other things that can maybe 
you know, smooth out your moods or other things if you're going through a funk. You realize that it doesn't really take care of the problem, does it? It just makes you feel better. I mean, I, I don't really know amongst here who has experience or not, but I'm sure you probably all have friends that have some exposure. But it doesn't take away the, the reason why you feel like you're unworthy. No medication takes away or makes it changed that you feel inferior or that you feel alone or that you feel worthless compared to other people. It just makes you at the moment physiologically feel better, emotionally have more of a high. But no amount of medication would really ultimately change your heart, which is why it is so important for us to remember what were we made for? Because if we know what we were made for, then we would bend our hearts and our attention and our affections towards that desire and that intention. And then I think how things get better and how things get changed is that actually your heart starts to change. You start seeing life in a different way. You start seeing people in a different way. You start seeing God in a different way. That it's about fulfilling God's purposes and seeing his image go into the world and not wrestling with your self-deficient image of yourself, especially as people are judging you and making you feel like you're less than who you are. So someone like Michael Phelps, who's achieved everything and has done everything the right way, can be at the lowest of lows. I'm telling you right now that if you are not living for the glory of God, there is no academic or professional or financial achievement you could ever have by which you can say, you know what, I'm going to finally be happy. You will not. You are not the exemption to the fallen nature and the brokenness that is us. You are not. So we have to remember if we exist and we were made intentionally and we were made to be known and to know others, then we were made for a reason and for a purpose, and we need to pursue that. So this connects us then to the gospel. Because remember what I said in the very beginning, that the gospel brings about restoration and reconciliation to God's vision for creation in the beginning. That it wasn't like, you know, God didn't see these things coming, or, or that, oh my gosh, you know, people sinned, and he was shocked. No, God knew, and God ordained these things to happen, but then he also ordained that Jesus would come into the world. In John 10, 10, well, it's up there. In John 10, 10, Jesus said this as part of his teaching in contrast to, to, to false teachers and false prophets and religious zealots who were after things for themselves and to build up their reputation to himself. He contrasts in this way. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy that Satan and all those that follow after him. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. And you can see that if you were made in God's image, that if you were made to be known, you were made to be loved, then abundant life is a really wonderful way to define and to understand what it means when you actually know and trust in the gospel. That the gospel is good news because it connects you to abundant life. Okay? And so... Here are some of the things that when Jesus came into the world and he died on the cross to bear our sins, when he suffered the wrath of God, by which then we could be reconciled to God and we could be found in Christ. Here are some of the ways in which our identity changes, is bolstered, and is supremely valuable. And no one can take that away from you. John chapter 1 verse 12. Just go ahead and listen. It's not a long verse. This is sharing about Jesus being the word, being there at the very beginning. And then it goes on to talk about this word coming into the world. Verse nine, the true light, which gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world and the world was made through him. Yet the world did not know him. He came to his own and his own people did not receive him. Verse 12, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. So when you receive Christ and trust in him, you become a child of God. 
that can't be taken away from you. You can't lose that because you didn't make that happen. That fundamentally changes your identity to become the child of a perfect heavenly father who can and will do no wrong to his children. That's a beautiful identity. That is abundant life. When you are children of God, the Bible speaks about how you're being transformed into his image and you are being conformed to the perfection and the beauty of Jesus, the son. You find that in Romans 12. In 1 Corinthians 6, it speaks about how if Christ is in you, the Holy Spirit is living in you, your body is a temple to God. Now, sometimes that verse is used as a way to say, okay, well, then I can't do this, I can't do that. But let's flip it the other way. It's not that what you can't do, but the supernatural thing that takes place is that God lives in you so that you don't have to yearn and search out and empty yourself to try to find a God that you can connect to and know that actually is true and loves you. The Holy Spirit lives in you if your faith is in Christ. You don't have to run away somewhere to find God. You just have to hold on to God who is in you. That's a fundamental change of identity. And finally, because God has accepted us through Christ, you can accept other people regardless of what they've done, who they are, what they look like, what they have, where they live, what they do, sins that they have done wrong. There's means and ways to forgiveness and reconciliation and true friendship. So another uh, headline that's been buzzing has been surrounding this increasingly unbelievably evil man named Larry Nasser. I, I hesitate to call him Dr. Larry Nasser because of what he has been accused and proven and charged and is found guilty of. So Larry Nasser is or was the team physician for United States gymnastics. And so over the course of you know, many, many Olympics, you know, you, you would have, you know, these young girls that are just trying to make it to the Olympics. They would go train and then they would be treated by him. And for the longest time, no one knew and not much was said, but it was very recently revealed and pretty much in the explosion thrown into the headlines the last couple of weeks that, you know what, this guy, under the guise of medical treatment and supervision, has molested and assaulted hundreds of girls. And when you're talking about gymnastics, you know they're girls. They're like girls, they're youth in gymnastics. And he's finally been found guilty, although not really for all of those things. He's being found guilty for other things, including wicked stuff like child pornography. I mean, this guy is just crazy, right? But the, the reason why this headline caught my attention, this is a, a Ali Raisman, or, Reisman. I'm sorry, I'm not quite sure how to pronounce her last name. But, but she kind of was famous because in 2012 and 2016, she won a few gold medals with Team USA. But she spoke. Because what happened was that, you know, this guy, this uh, uh, doctor guy, you know, he, he was found guilty and then he had to sit through this kind of a sentencing phase of things. And along the way, all of these previous victims, previously silenced or at least held their mouths closed, they decided to come forward and, and speak one statement at a time. These just heart-wrenching, horrendous personal ways in which they were violated and their dreams were dashed and their hopes in, whether it's USA Gymnastics or their hopes in a doctor or their hopes in you know, an institution was just irreparably shattered. And so she's probably one of the more famous but as she was speaking to him face to face, you know, she, she said this to his face. The tables have turned Larry. We are here. We have our voices and we are not going anywhere. See, before 
Under this particular program, with this corrupt doctor, many people suffered harm. The reason why this was seen as a courageous thing is because she finally stood up, walked into the light, and spoke truth. Now, I'm not trying to equal this tragedy to, let's say, you know, maybe much more ordinary things that happen to us or that we're familiar with. I'm not trying to say that at all. But, but where I want to make the connection is that for many of us, we don't really realize or believe or cling to a greater eternal identity that God has given to us in Christ, but instead we look for our validation in other places, putting our faith in programs and in institutions and in people. But if we're not living out what we were made to do and to be, there's going to be heartbreak at the end of those things. And again, I'm not making it equal that what has happened to all these young women are related to necessarily what may happen to us. But it's to point out that, you know what, if your hope is in the wrong place, if truth isn't able to shatter through and break through darkness, then even when there's success, even when there's discipline, even when there are you know, just track records and clean reputations, all that kind of stuff, it's not ultimately where you're going to be able to find true validation and salvation. There needs to be more. And God has given us more. This is why this series ends with the gospel and me. And me is you. It's not just about knowing about how the gospel connects to various aspects of your life. But it's actually trusting that the gospel directly intersects with your identity and why you were made and what you were intended for. So that every day you live by, you trust in, and you breathe by the truth that is Christ in you, the hope of glory, because of what he did on the cross for your sake. The gospel in you is why coming to church, you know, uh, worshiping, reading the Bible, doing any of these things even matters, is because at the end of the day, it brings you back to who you were always meant to be and made for to bring glory to God and to find abundant joy in Christ. So as a group, in many ways, our message to the world, not in the necessarily in the militant or, you know, kind of like a, you know, like a very uh, dogmatic or kind of like a attacking kind of way to people that aren't Christians or that, that don't know Christ. It's, but at the end of the day, like our message is actually this. We are here. We have our voices and we are not going anywhere and the message that we have is the gospel. You could try to fix my life in a ton of ten, tens of other ways. You could try to add meaning to my life through all these other things. You could try to get me to live better, to provide tips and tactics so that I could be more presentable or be more popular. But at the end, none of that matters unless the gospel is in the center and our hope and our trust is in him. So let's go ahead and, and pray. And then I, I want us to, to break up into our groups. There's a reason why I want you to sit in your group so we can just jump right into this uh, and address just these four questions. And the goal here is not to get answers to all four questions or to even hit up every question. This is where I'm leaning on you guys as counselors to have the wisdom to lead your group in a direction because you already know the hearts of your people. What would matter most? What would be most meaningful? Okay, so here, here's a question uh, to you. What does it mean to be a man or a woman? Maybe some of us are struggling with that. Maybe some of us are among the many for which our gender identity we're wrestling with on a very fundamental level. That doesn't make you bad. But I think we want to bring it back to what God's word says. So I hope that you guys could talk about that if that's where some of you guys are in your groups. What does it mean for you to be a man or a woman? Where are your questions about that? What are your conflicts about that? Okay. What are your struggles with that? Number two, what are some things that you like about yourself? <clears throat> I know, it's like an Asian church, right? You never talk about anything like, like good thing about yourself, right? Like that's, that's crazy. No, but, but seriously, 
where your value is is rooted at some deep point to the fact that you like certain things about yourself and you hope that other people like them too. That's your value. You like some things about yourself. You're proud of some attributes of yourself, certain gifts that you have, hobbies, interests, upbringings, stories that you have. What are some things you like about yourself? Okay, share about that. That might make for a fun discussion there. But if you could change one thing, what would it be? See, this, this question starts digging into your identity some more. So what do you like about yourself, but what is something you would change if you had all the power in the world or if you had a genie that would just grant you wishes? What, what would you change? Talk about that. Um, and number three, how can you pursue Christ and run after God's purpose in creating you personally and corporately? I know that's the very kind of vanilla question, right? But, but it's meaningful. Um, you know, if you are fully trusting in Christ to save you and you are wanting to embrace this image that, that he is restoring in you, then how do you, how do you follow Christ? How do you do this together? How do you see your small group and think, Hey, how can we run after this together? How do you see Unicoi? Hey, how can we run after this together? How do you see this church? How do we do this together? What are ways in which you yourself as a person can do this, right? Uh, how do you pursue Christ and run after God's purpose in creating you personally and corporately? So those are just some questions, but it's not limited to these, nor do you have to address them all, but I'll leave it at the discretion and the wisdom of the counselors to, to take you uh, where they want to take you. So let's go ahead and pray. Father, we just want to thank you, God, for this time that we have, Lord, to look deeper in what the gospel means and can look like in those who are holding on with all might, wanting to live out the purpose and wanting to claim and propagate the image that you have created us with in Christ. Father, we thank you, Lord, that, that following Jesus and living for you is not a distant thing that we compartmentalize in our lives, in our heads, as if that's the point of it all, that we know some things, but we live for others. And so God, I just want to pray, Lord, that you would just be with us in this time of um, response and, and of discussion in our groups. Father, to just really bring us to the heart of where we are at with you personally and corporately. Help us, Lord, to, to desire you more and more. Help us, Father, to see our surroundings and our lives, Lord, with a clear lens rooted in Scripture and from the perspective of our Creator God and not just from what people are trying to convince us of or get us to believe. Help us, God, to have wisdom and discernment, especially if we are wrestling with various aspects of our gender and in other ways in which we who are living in a sinful and broken world we need an anchor, and we need that anchor to be rooted in Scripture. Help us, Father, to listen and to affirm to one another, too, especially as we get to share about the things that we like about ourselves. May it lend to ways in which we can encourage other people, too. And help us, Father, to just bear each other's burdens, God, as we share today in group. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.